a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On December 12, 2005, word of a string of murders in Mexico reaches all the way to page four of the New York Times. The article, titled A Serial Killer Shakes Up a City and a Cultural Myth, focuses on the struggles Mexican authorities are having in identifying a murderer known as the Little Old Lady Killer, or, as Mexican authorities call them, El Mata Viejitas. Or it could be La Mata Viejitas. Police aren't sure if the culprit is a man or a woman. All they know for certain is that little old ladies all over Mexico City are being strangled in their homes. They've been investigating for two years, in which time at least 24 victims have been killed. And the only evidence police have so far is a fingerprint. A fingerprint that can't be matched to any known criminal. This isn't like any case that Mexican authorities have ever dealt with. American-style serial killing in Mexico is unheard of which leads investigators to imagine a distorted profile of who this killer is. A profile that will lead them in circles as the little old lady killer strikes again and again. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. It's actually hard to know when El Mata Viejitas first began their killing spree. Some reports suggest that the killing started as early as the 1990s. Either way, it's not until 2003 that the police first take notice. In Mexico City, eight seniors, all of them old women, are killed in rapid succession, each of them strangled in their own home. And this leads locals to suggest that a single person could be responsible. But the police are not convinced. They immediately reject the idea. They, in fact, blame the media. They call the accusations of a Mexican serial killer media sensationalism. A serial killer in Mexico? That just doesn't happen. And from their perspective, serial killers are a United States problem. Ho, 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 the red, white, and blue. They believe the U.S. breeds angry loners because of lack of family values. These loners are then driven to madness and eventually murder by American individualism. Hmm. As Mexican officials would put it, uh, no brags, USA, but we don't have resentful loners like you guys do. Here, the family structures are super supportive. People live in multi-generational homes with grandparents and their children and their children's children, and everyone's taking care of each other. Traditionally speaking, in these homes, grandmothers are sort of the backbone of that structure, right? They are holding the families together, and they're making society work, and then they're protected by this structure. So so why would somebody kill them? It would be an attack on the cultural underpinnings of Mexico. Although, I would argue, it's pretty universally bad to kill grandmas. Yeah, I, I want to be very clear. I don't know of any society where killing grandmas is like a normal thing. I mean, that's dark wherever it happens. And I'm not so sure that the police are trustworthy actors at this point. It seems like they're in, I don't know, a bit of denial. They'd rather you not 
think of the hundreds of women who went missing in Juarez that same year. They don't want you to think about the history of cartels and the Mexican police's reputation for deep-seated corruption, and especially not that they have their own homegrown serial killer problem. But then, as each victim is murdered and reported and the police go to the crime scene and gather information and evidence, they're able to find partial prints that seem to match each other. Their worst fear is confirmed. They're looking for a serial killer in Mexico. So the top investigators in Mexico City are brought together to create a profile of the suspect. They are certain that this is a man, no question. Probably white, heterosexual. The lead investigator, Bernardo Batiste, tells a reporter with Reforma, a Mexico City newspaper, that the killer is a person with a brilliant mind, very astute and cautious. And their profile is super detailed. It describes El Mata Viejitas as a man from a broken family who suffered childhood abuse and likely has a sadomasochistic and fetishist tendencies. Yeah, essentially what they're doing, what the Mexican authorities are up to, is they're copy-pasting the profile of American serial killer Ted Bundy. It's like they've just totally at this point discounted the possibility the killer could be Mexican And the vibe is, look, this is not ours. This is not one of us. The U.S. is the one with the serial killer problem. So if it's happening here, I don't know, maybe one of theirs escaped and showed up. Uh, Any theory that provides distance is going to be favored. Totally. And I also just think it's so interesting that before they were like, it's definitely not a serial killer. It's definitely not a serial killer. It's definitely not a serial killer. And then they were like, it is a serial killer, but it's definitely one of us. It's definitely not one of us. It's definitely not one of us. I mean, in Mexico's defense, this is new territory. I mean, Mexico has actually never investigated a serial killer before. So they just completely ignore the possibility that it is a Mexican person altogether. As my therapist says, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. And I got to tell you, the past would tell us that it is a U.S. perp. The case of El Mataviajitas is actually the first active investigation of a serial killer that Mexican police have undertaken. Yeah. So uh, that being said, their profile that they've created of this killer couldn't be more wrong. This investigation has several false alarms. In April of 2004, the police arrest a woman who admits to dressing as a nurse in order to rob old women. Soon after, this woman is captured, though, and in custody, El Mata Viejitas strikes again. And then later that same year in October, lead investigator Bernardo Batiste announces that they've solved the case. He says that there are two killers and both perps are in custody. Crisis averted, right, Quinn? Definitely. Wrong. (laughs) After their arrest, a 60-year-old woman is found strangled in her home. And it's the same circumstances as the previous women. And they know they've got the wrong people in custody. By November 2004, at least 18 elderly women have been strangled to death by El Mataviajitas. And the public is justifiably terrified. Sure, the police have been at this for a year, and they really seem to be dragging their feet. They declare that the motive for these killings of these 18 women is robbery, in spite of the fact that a bunch of them live in relative poverty, and there have been no signs of forced entry on any of these homes. And in fact, 
They didn't take anything. Well, the only thing that seems to have been taken are small keepsakes, like uh, religious statues. Creepy much? Oh, beyond creepy. It just gives me the ick so bad because they're just, let's call them what they are. They're trophies. Mm. The killings continue in Mexico City with few new clues for the police to investigate. They are totally stuck. Until July of 2005, the son of one of the El Mataviejitas prospective victims makes an unexpected visit to see their mom. And when they enter, their mom's just been attacked. But the killer flees before they can finish the job. And as they run away, the son catches a glimpse of them. They are nothing like the profile the police have created. The witness describes El Mataviejitas as broad-shouldered, that they have light brown skin, they wear heavy makeup, and they dress in women's clothing. Now, when you look at all of this together, some might say, hmm, El Mataviejitas is actually La Mataviejitas, a woman. But no, 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 not the Mexican police. They are still convinced it is a man because, well, no woman is strong enough to commit these crimes. I'm sorry, can, can I hear uh, benevolent sexism from the back? Benevolent sexism in the house. Thank you, thank you. And in addition to benevolent sexism, the police have already made their mind up. Based on this new information with an inability to discount the old information, folks, it's a combo pack. We got a pretzel with a cheese filling in here. We're combining every theory in one. The police have decided that the killer is a man dressed in women's clothing. Because of this, the police have now set their sights towards Mexico City's queer community. For the very first time in Mexican history, a task force is formed with the sole purpose of investigating a serial killer and bringing them to justice. By October 2005, they put out a police sketch and a description of the killer to all of Mexico City. In case you all forgot what we're looking for, it is a man dressed as a woman or a robust woman dressed in white. Height between 1.7 and 1.75 meters, light brown complexion, oval face, approximately 45 years old. I gotta tell you, I feel a little weird about the dressed in white part of this because presumably the killer has, I don't know, a few clothing options. <laughs> That's so the most insane. I think that's the most insane thing. Definitely dressed in white. God forbid they changed to a red jumper. Um, I mean, but what do you mean, Quinn? The police might be wrong? The same police who have been literally wrong about everything else? And maybe because they're kind of just lost in this case, they send out statements that really put the onus on the public to be on the lookout. Like, they're kind of weirdly blaming the victims in some way because essentially they're telling all these old women in Mexico City just to not talk to strangers, you know, stranger danger folks. But it's like, don't you think these women are already on high alert? Yeah, it strikes me as real, like, victim blamey before the fact. Like, by the way, if this happens again, you probably weren't listening to our really terrific advice. Hey, how about um, this advice, police? Do your job. Oh, excellent. Hot take. In their description of the killer, they add that the killer is, you know, likely a man with homosexual preferences, a victim of childhood physical abuse that has resentment toward feminine figures and possesses great intelligence. All I'm hearing from this is homophobia, 
homophobia, homophobia. The Mexican police keep using Euro-American serial killers as their reference point. And they use the case of a gay French serial killer known as the Monster of Montmartre as a template to guide their work. Yeah, that seems to me a real risky strategy because if you're totally wrong about the killer's M.O., then it's going to be pretty hard to make any progress. And you could also be, uh, I don't know, right about some things and real wrong about others. I mean, we see this often, though, in, in cases, right, Quinn, where it's like the police have blinders on to any sort of outside influence or any sort of new information, and they just kind of, like, refuse to see any other information. Well, it's sort of, I hesitate to use the word ironic because I don't know what it means, but it does feel like uh, in their desperation to make progress, they hold on to certain things that, in fact, ironically, if they let go of those things, that would actually be in the name of progress. Totally. Then El Mata Viejitas strikes again. This time, their victim is 92-year-old woman named Maria de los Angeles Repper, who was killed shortly after arriving home from the grocery store to buy bread and milk. And with this story come more witness accounts. These new witnesses describe the killer as wearing a wig and having feminine qualities. I, I don't know what that means. I cannot help but wonder what those qualities are. Do you think the killer was just talking about their period constantly? That, that has to be it. But that the, has to be the feminine qualities that they're alluding to. Well, it's feminine qualities, right? Because the police are not going to let go of this profile. They cannot imagine that a woman has the strength to strangle these older women. It's, it's got to be a gay guy dressed like one. Let's be honest. There's no discerning between gender identity and sexuality in the police conversation at this time. But the police then decide to raid areas of the city known to be popular with low-income queer folks. On October 14th, 2005, they round up somewhere between 38 and 50 queer people. They detain them, interrogate them, and fingerprint them. It's terrifying. I mean, if Ugh. history's taught us anything, it's it's not real great when the authorities round up a group of people based on I don't know, race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, any of that gives me the alarm bells. And Absolutely. I, can't, I cannot help but acknowledge that this community is obviously already marginalized. And the fact that the police are now targeting them is really scary for a lot of reasons. And only when none of them come up as a match to the killer's fingerprints, that's when lead investigator Bernardo Batiste announces a revision to the profile of El Mata Viejitas. Okay, okay, everybody. Maybe it's not a cross-dressing gay man, but it's definitely a transgender person, he says. Now, the police in this time use the terms transgender and homosexual interchangeably because they don't know enough and they haven't tried to know anymore, but also they don't see a difference between sexuality and gender identity. And again, they are using a marginalized community that they have no knowledge of as a scapegoat for these horrific crimes. And it's really scary because these people are already so vulnerable. Yeah, it's just it's homophobia mixed with transphobia and sexism and just a little light dusting of lazy policing on top. It's not a great cocktail. I would send it back. They are literally scapegoating gay and trans people because they cannot fathom the possibility that a woman would have the strength 
or the intelligence to commit the crimes. And after three years of investigation with really little to no progress, they still don't consider that their preconceived notions might be wrong. By January of 2006, 25 women have been found strangled and dead in their homes, and the police are no closer to catching the killer than they were six months before. They're so desperate for help that they end up bringing in outside help. They invite three French investigators to Mexico City to teach a 30-hour course on serial killers to 100 of their officers. Yeah, little do they know, if they would just pick up that remote and turn on the TV, guess what they'd see? La Mataviejitas herself. She's wearing heavy makeup, a red sweater, and a bashful smile, and she is being interviewed by TV Azteca at the Arena Coliseum. She's a luchador, a wrestler, by the name of La Dama del Silencio, the Lady of Silence. The search for La Mata Viejitas stumps Mexican authorities. Now, we have 25 women murdered in their homes. There is little to no evidence except for a few fingerprints. And most of their actual effort has gone towards harassing queer people in low-income neighborhoods. They're still stuck. Yep. They're stuck. And they suck. And the only breaks in the case come from luck. You really, you really put that in. I love that. (laughs) People who have walked in on the killer during the act, who have seen this murderer running away from the crime scene, are the people letting them know where to look. And I think we can all agree that waiting for a killer to just strike again so that you can get more information, that might actually be the worst way to catch a killer. Especially when you have 25 victims already. It's like, yeah, the odds you catch a killer go up each killing, but is that really the best you can do? How many more old women have to die while you just wait for this killer to make a mistake or the luck of you catching them in the act? Well, they don't have to wait long. On January 25th, 2006, a man in a working class neighborhood notices that his landlord's door got left open. And so he walks inside to check on her and finds 82-year-old Ana Maria Reyes Alfaro strangled to death. A stethoscope is still wrapped around her neck. He looks around and sees a tall woman in a red sweater running down the street. He immediately shouts, policia, policia. And luckily, there are a couple of officers nearby, and immediately they give chase. By 2.30 in the afternoon, they have this woman in custody. And her name is Juana Barraza Samperio. The lucky officers call their boss, Bernardo Batiste, and break the news. We've caught La Mataviejitas. I wish I was there so I could see the look at his face when he realizes it's a woman. He can hardly believe it. I mean, one, they caught the murder. Two, La Mataviejitas is a woman? The articles about her arrest focus as much on the fact that the killer has been caught as they do on her gender. 
and investigators and journalists descend on the scene. There are countless photos of Juana Barraza trying to hide her face from the cameras, but there's really just as many showing her talking to the reporters. She admits to the killing of Ana Maria Reyes Alfaro, saying, yes, I did it, but she denies any of these other killings. And she tells them, just because I'll pay for it, that doesn't mean they're going to hang all the crimes on me. She claims that this is her first and only victim. But when they catch her, they find tools that show how she earned the trust of her victims. In her possession, they find two plastic bags, a blood pressure gauge, an ID indicating that she was an employee of a city welfare program serving the elderly, and a list of names and addresses of women who receive monthly relief checks from the state. They fingerprint her at the station, and guess what? It's a match. This is their Mataviajitas, all right. Great work, detectives. Mm, not really. No, great work, the, the tenant who went to check on his landlord. The media frenzy over this case is immediate and intense. And interestingly enough, there was actually another serial killer who was caught the same week as Juana Barraza. I guess those 30 hours of coursework really that did a lot off. of work. It paid off. Um, the other serial killer's name is Raul Ociel Maraquin. And ironically enough, his MO was to torture, extort, and kill gay men. Again, just to reiterate, because it's worth saying, queer people are paying the price for this case. Not only are they being targeted by the police as a suspect, but they're also being targeted by a serial killer as well. That fact seems to have been lost on reporters and police because they are just laser-focused on Juana Barraza's case. Well, and most headlines are just going to lump Juana and this other killer together because, look, we caught them both. Let's talk about the success of the Mexican police's investigations. Bravo. Newspapers show a photo of Juana standing next to a plaster bust of her face, which was created based on an eyewitness description. And it really does look remarkably like her. But again, just the crazy image in your head. Imagine this woman standing next to a plaster bust of her face just being photographed by photographers and newspapers everywhere. It is wild. So the press talks a lot about her amateur lucha libre career as La Dama del Silencio. And if you're not uh, familiar with lucha libre, it's staged theatrical wrestling where there's good guys, there's bad guys, they wear masks and they wear costumes and fight it out. Uh, in Juana's case, she really liked to play the villain. And if you look up pictures of her, you, you really often see this one picture of her wearing a bright pink leotard with silver tiger stripes on it. And she's got a mask and it's in the shape of a butterfly. And she's holding up this championship belt and flexing her muscles. So any question that a woman would not have been strong enough to commit these murders, I, I think this picture just really says it all. Three days after her arrest, Juana gives a recorded confession to the police. And guess what? They televise it. 
And in this video, we see Juana Barraza. She's sitting in a white room and she's seemingly by herself, but there are two investigators just off camera who are asking her questions. Can you imagine a televised confession? I mean, it's good television. In this confession, she says she would kill women who just simply looked at her. She would ask them for help or she'd offer them help and they would let her into their homes where she would strangle them with whatever she had on her. Sometimes that's a scarf or stockings, anything these women had in their homes. She never used her hands. And in that confession, aired on TV Azteca Noticias, she also describes her motive. In her confession, Baratza cries harder and harder and harder as she talks about how her mom abused her physically, emotionally, and verbally. As Baratza tells it, her mom forced her to marry a man older than her who also abused her. And she says, and she knows it's no excuse, but that's why she hates older women. Her mother was the villain in her life, and it seems like that was her motive. Juana Barraza had just an undeniably horrible upbringing. As a child, she lived on the edge of poverty, and her mother, Justa Semperio, was, like Carrie said, this villain in her life. She was an alcoholic that beat her and her two siblings. And when Juana was only 13, her mom sold her to a man in exchange for three beers. She sold her daughter. Young Juana thought her mother would return and pick her up that night, but instead, Juana was tied to a bed and raped. She was forced to become a mother, and she was not allowed to leave the house. She was stuck in that home for five years, and in that time, her resentment for her mother grew. And when she finally escaped with the help of her uncle, it was only a few years later that she was struck by another tragedy. Her only child was senselessly murdered in front of her very eyes. Yeah, it's absolutely brutal. What an unbelievable, horrible upbringing. Juana did eventually remarry and have three more children, and that's when she became a luchador. La Dama del Silencio was sort of, I think of it as like an escape, and probably in some ways it helped to release all that anger in a healthy way. Um, but that resentment towards her mother, it never went away. It just grew and grew into this extreme hatred of all older women. And it turned her into a monster. In 2008, Juana Barraza went to trial for her crimes. She is charged with 16 counts of murder. The prosecution describes how she would just sort of cruise out in public during the day uh, looking for little old women who she would target. And sometimes she would approach them by asking them if they needed help carrying their shopping bags or if she could do any cleaning work for them at their house. Other times she would, you know, do what she does best and, and put on that theatrical disguise. She would pose as a nurse or a social worker offering a free checkup or information about benefits. And once inside, she would strangle her victims while their backs were turned. She would use tights, phone cables, or the stethoscope that she carried with her. 
And she typically liked to steal small religious mementos from the scenes to keep as souvenirs. Just a total serial killer move, keeping trophies of your victims. And very creepy to keep these sort of religious things when doing something so anti-religious. During the trial, Juana denies all of these murders, but the one that she was pretty much caught red-handed committing. But, you know, she has also already confessed, so it's a little flippy-floppy. And the flip-flop continues because Juana's lawyer would later claim that she tried to turn herself in three separate times and that he claims that she would linger outside of the office where lead investigator Bernardo Batiste and his officers were working. But each time she would get there, she would just change her mind, mainly because she was worried at the thought of what would happen to her three kids. After a relatively short trial on March 31st, 2008, Juana Barraza is found guilty on all counts. And because Mexico doesn't have the death penalty, she is sentenced to an astonishing 759 years in prison. Relax, she's a wrestler, not a vampire. And upon hearing her sentence, she says, may God forgive you and not forget me. Juana Barraza is living out the rest of her life in Santa Martha, Acatitla, where she sells tacos to inmates and guards. It's not really the kind of jail you might imagine for a convicted serial killer. It's described more like um, a rehabilitation center than a prison. And Juana's job is to coordinate walking activities, meaning that she walks elderly women around the courtyard on Friday afternoons. This is a big old leap from how she ended up in there in the first place. Yeah, don't you wonder how that conversation in the courtyard goes where they're like, what are you in for? What are you doing here? I guess I don't know if you know. I'm good. I'm good, actually. I'm going to do this one alone. I just feel like, I don't know what it is. I feel like having actually, a quiet by myself walk. Can you walk in front of me, Juana? I would appreciate you not walking behind me. Thanks. Juana Barraza hasn't given many media interviews since she was sentenced, but her story is not forgotten. It lives on in popular culture in songs about La Mata Viejitas. Wow, that's a pretty uh, upsetting case for just so many reasons. I think I'd say, yeah, one of the things I actually find the most disturbing is just the zeal the police seem to have in conducting a homophobic and transphobic witch hunt, Mm. you know? And I'm like, guys, there's this uh, theory of construction called Occam's razor that essentially says the simplest explanation is often the right one. You know, in other words, if the serial killer is dressed like a woman and you're describing them as having feminine qualities, whatever that means, they might just be a woman. It just felt like the police are so out of depth, even with their French friends uh, out there helping. They just wasted so much time targeting this already vulnerable community. And as a result, more grandmas died. And what's so sad is that we find out that there's another serial killer targeting gay men at the same time. So not only was the queer community targeted by police, but they were also victims at the hands of another serial killer on the loose. And the queer community wasn't silent about how they felt marginalized and discriminated against. I mean, one advocate demanded that the prosecutor, Bernardo Batiste, apologize publicly since he was the one who suggested that it was trans people who were responsible for the killings. 
they also asserted that the Mexico City police actually had a homophobic attitude. And to that, we say, duh. 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 And I think what's so alarming about this case is the ineffectiveness of the police. I mean, we see this so often where they get an idea and then it just becomes blinders to every other possibility. And in doing so, they get further and further away from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the sentence. At first glance, you say, well, she killed a bunch of grandmas. You know, they must have been outraged. But Many people have posited that she's actually being punished for more than that, and that's why the sentence is so bananas. Uh, The outrage towards her has just as much to do with her breaking gender stereotypes as it does with committing murder. I mean, hot take, though. I mean, I do think she deserves to spend the rest of her life in jail. I think when they're talking about a crazy sentence is that it's 759 years. It feels... Seems to make a point. And also, I think the media sensationalism around it, that she became known so far and wide being a woman, because it's like, how could you kill an elderly woman? But worst of all, how could a woman kill anyone? And I think, I do think that Baratza was able to commit all of these crimes for so long because of benevolent sexism. And we talked about it constantly. It's like, you know, two sides of the same coin. She was able to exist as a murderer for so long because she was a woman, and also she was sentenced to the absolute maximum because also she was a woman at the and same time. She never wore white and she never, well, just that one time, just that one time Quinn. But after that, it was all red um, and pink. Uh, but at the same time, I do want to talk about the victims. That's where I want to leave off because all of these victims were um, older women, which I think there's a conversation worth having about women becoming invisible the older you get, right? And not cared for, not seen. And while in the story we listed the names of the women that we do know, there are so many names in this case of victims that we do not know. But these victims were more than just people killed by this horrible serial killer. I want to acknowledge that they were people who loved, they were people who were loved, And they were targeted in a way because they lived alone and they were invisible to a lot of people. So they were easy targets. But these women had lives, had families, and they deserve to be remembered um, as that. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. The book The Little Old Lady Killer by Susana Cervantes and a New York Times article titled A Serial Killer Shakes Up a City and a Cultural Myth by Elizabeth Malkin. And a special thanks to our associate producer Hazel's aunt and uncle Anne Morrill and Milton Ospina and her bestie, Natalie Ruiz Davis, who helped with translation for this episode. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Cass is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.